I feel the need to make a disclaimer right off the bat. Um, I did not tie David to that tree. <laughs> I don't know who did, but it wasn't me. My name is Brian Trias. I'm the family pastor here at Fellowship Bible Church, and I am so excited to get to talk with you about family. I've been working in family ministry for uh, about 11 years, and there's nothing that brings me more joy in my career to see families get it, to come together and to move in the right direction, to move in a godly direction as a family unit. And so I'm really excited about what God has for us this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And as you're turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I just kind of want to bring us back to the baseline of this series. Joe gave us some points to outline this series last week, and we're going to cover them pretty quickly. But we just want everyone to be on the same page. This might be your first week in the Family of Tomorrow series. But the first thing that we want you to realize is that what is real in your family is not always ideal. What is real in your family is not always ideal. And I don't have to do a survey of, of the body to understand that. I just have to look at my own house, right? Because the picture that I would love to paint on the wall and the picture when you first have kids of the way everything is going to look like, it just doesn't always look like that. And the truth is that all of us have dysfunction in our families and we have seasons of high and low dysfunction. But we just have to realize what's real in our families is not always ideal. Now, here's the good news. We want you to take heart. We don't want to heap on shame and guilt. We want you to understand that we have a perfect God who has made the way and paid for our sin. And he wants to use our imperfect families to tell his story. Now, the words that are bold on the screen are perfect and imperfect. But the words that we're really going to focus on today is his story. We're going to talk about the concept of story. You see, humans are drawn to story. We love to tell them. We love to hear them. There's something about a story that resonates with us. And we're going to look at the story of the Israelite people. We're going to look at what it could teach us about the stories that we are currently writing. We want you to realize that God is going to use himself to use our imperfect families to tell his story. Then we want you to think about something. We want you to think about the fact that your less than ideal family exists to reflect the heart of God to every generation. This is a generational message. It was never meant to dead end in you. This is not a message that's just about what do I need to get. It's what I need to get so that I can give. It is for the next generation. And this is not just a parenting message. This is not just a marriage for those who have kids in your house. This is a message for aunts and for uncles. This is a message for grandparents. This is a message for not just the um, home family, but the church family. We are called as a people to raise up the next generation. And we are going to look at how we can do that today. Then we want you to act on it. We want you to act on it. Transformation tomorrow happens when you invite God into your family today and follow his way. And that brings us to our key point. Our key point is that relationships of the future are founded on how I relate today. And this is very simple, right? This is this comes down to goal setting in some ways. We've all set a goal. We have something that we want to achieve in the future. We have something we want to look like in the future. And we know that from where we are now to the point where we want to be, that something's going to have to change. And you have to make transformation today so that that transformation you want to see tomorrow can happen. And you get there step by step. So our question is, if we want to see our relationships change today, 
Our transforming question is this. What does my family need from me? What does my family need from me so that we can bring about this transformation in our families that we want to see? I believe that Deuteronomy chapter 6 has an answer for us today. Now, Deuteronomy is one of my favorite books to preach out of. And you might say, really, Deuteronomy? Like the book with all the laws and the regulations and all the, like that's your favorite, one of your favorite books? And it's absolutely one of my favorite books to preach because it's, it's not just words on a page. What Deuteronomy represents is a sermon. It is a person who is speaking something to another group of people. But it's not just any sermon. You see, it was the last recorded sermon that we have from an individual. And that individual's name is Moses. Deuteronomy is Moses looking back on his ministry, looking back on his life, and knowing what is coming in the future. And he's preparing the people to write a better story. You see, Moses' story is about to come to an end. Moses isn't, get to, isn't going to get to enter into the promised land. He's not going to get to see the land flowing of milk and honey because of choices that he made. He wants the people to write a better story. The people want to write a better story. They have been in the desert of death. They have been in the wilderness for 40 years as an entire generation has been killed off because of their disobedience. You see, this is the second time that they're on the cusp of going to the promised land. And the first time they sent spies out into the land and 10 of those 12 came back and said, we can't do it. We can't go there. We can't trust that God could get us through it. So for 40 years, God killed off that generation because they were not going to enter into the land. You have a group of people who watch their parents and grandparents die off. You have an entire generation who said, the story that our folks wrote, we don't want that story. We want a better story. And Moses is now sitting there with them and saying, let me tell you what it's going to take when you get into the land. And we begin with Deuteronomy 6, 1. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. You see, what he is giving them is command, or our commandments and statutes and rules, but he's giving them to them, to them for a purpose. And it's because they're going to a place where everything is going to try to drive them away from the heart of God. The Canaanites are going to try to offer them gods and women's and material possessions and all sorts of things that are meant to rip them away from their connection to God. And he's saying, no, I'm going to have grace on you and show you how to relate to me. I'm giving you everything you need to know for life and for godliness. And then he tells them why in verse 2. He says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. You see, this is a generational message. This is a message that's not meant to dead end in the people. They're meant to hear what Moses is saying. They're meant to apply it in their lives. And they're meant to take it and to give it to the people who are in their families. And then we have verse 3. He says, Hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you. In a land flowing with milk and honey, he has painted the picture. Blessings are about to come to you. The story that you are about to write is better than the story your parents wrote. But what is it going to take to prosper like this in the land? 
We turn to Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, there is one God. He is our God. He is the first and the best. He is the only. There are no gods that are going to come after him. There are no gods that are going to come before him. There's no one over him. There's no one under him. There are no other gods. He is the one. He is the only. He gets the priority. He gets the best. He gets everything you have because he is it. So how do you relate to a God who's it? Who's the only thing? When Moses follows that up with, you shall love this God. You shall give him everything you have. You shall love him with all of your heart. You shall love him with all of your soul. You shall love him with all of your strength. Every single thing about you, what you can see and what you can't see, your material, your immaterial, what you have, everything you are belongs to him. You are to adore and love him. Because of what he has done for you. This is a message that Moses is giving to all the people in the audience. But then he does something really unique in verse 6. He makes it uniquely personal. He says, these commandments that I'm giving you today shall be upon your heart. You see, we have a tendency when we hear messages to believe that he's talking about someone else. He's talking about the other people in the crowd who need to hear this. And he says, no, this message today is to be on your heart. This needs to be the most important thing in your life. You need to be defined by the way that you love the one and only God and you follow his ways. And so our question this morning is, what does my family need from me? The first thing that I want to tell you this morning that your family needs from you is a reality check. It's a reality check. You see, if I were to ask the question, what, what should be the most dominating thing in your life? What should be the thing of highest value? What should be the thing that you make all your decisions by? You could all tell me the answer that I want to hear. I have taught enough Sunday school classes to know that someone's hand's going to go up and say, Jesus! And then they're going to want a candy bar. We can answer the ideal question. We know where things are headed. I don't want to answer what is ideal right now. I want to answer what is real. If you were to do a reality check of what gets your best, of where your time, your talent, and your treasures go, what would be the answer? Our staff this week we went to a conference and uh, one of the speakers was talking about the intangibles of leadership. And one of the things that he threw out there was that grit was an intangible of leadership. That you had to be gritty. You had to be able to work through things. And then he said, there's a test that you could take on our website to see how gritty you are. And I love tests. Okay, And so I went and I, I pulled it up on my phone and I got to the first question and I read the first question and I read the first five answers and I figured out the test. I knew immediately how to score the test so that I would come out on a scale of five as a five with grit. It was going to be easy. And all I would have to do to be able to show all my friends how gritty I was, was to answer what it needed to know. But that's not going to really tell me anything about myself. And so the option that I took was I answered it honestly. And I did the best that I could as a city boy to answer these questions about grit. And I got my real score. What I want you to do today is to do a test. 
I don't want you to tell me what you think I want to hear. I want you to look at the members of your family and to say what's real. Because what's real in too many of our families is that our values are driven and ruled by other things. Maybe you're here and your family is ruled by activities and schedule. And that the calendar is what makes the decisions in your family. When, we were, when, when kids are young, we never thought we were going to end up here. We never planned that a little white ball was going to be the thing that ruled our lives. But somehow it happens. Because somewhere along the way, we believe the lie. That what starts as a really innocent game of catch in the front lawn is going to end with your son as the starting shortstop of the Baltimore Orioles. It's not. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying that the chances that, that your son plays professionally or dances professionally or does all these things, it's next to none. The, chance that the chances that they get a Division I scholarship, let alone any college scholarship, is almost none. In fact, more children are walking away from athletics before high school than ever. Why? Because we've bought into this lie that it's all that matters. And we write a really, really bad story. Maybe it's not activities. Maybe for your family it's academics. Maybe you are really, really overly concerned about grades and school and homework and getting your right GPA and your class standing and getting into the right college so you can get into the right grad school so you can have the right career and make the right amount of money. It reminds me of a story when I was in the sixth grade and I was in an art class. Now, mind you, I was in an art class because they made me take art, okay? Because I wasn't very good at it. And when the teacher came and handed me my grade, I guarantee you it wasn't very good because I'm not good at art and I was completely okay with that. But they handed my best friend his grade and his head just sunk in his hands. Let me remind you, sixth grade, art class. I said, Brent, what's wrong? He said, I'm never going to get into Stanford. <laughs> now, sixth grade Brian was probably like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. 35-year-old Brian's like, dude, chill out. <laughs> Who cares where you go to school? The thing that matters most in your life is not the education that you get or the grades that produce. It's not even the career that you choose to go down. No, the thing that needs to dominate your life is whether it's centered on the person of Jesus. That is the better story. The worst can be attitude. Because attitude is the, the smile veneer. Everything's okay. Look, here's my children. Here's my family. Look, the haircut looks nice. The clothes look. The shoes are tied. Everything's ready to go. We got out of the car this Sunday morning and we smiled and we we're actually pretending like we want to be here together. And everything's hunky-dory and we can play the game and make everything look good and what's on the inside can be rotten to the core. You see, as parents, we can't be more concerned about what's on the outside. We have to be more concerned with what's on the inside. Where are we pointing our families? What are the values that we're using to make decisions? And I'm asking you to do a reality check. What is the thing that is driving your heart? What is the thing that is driving your family? What is the thing that gets your first and your best?
Moses says that these commandments that I give you today shall be upon your heart. I'm asking, are they upon yours? The second thing I think our family needs from us is intentional growth. Intentional growth. You see, we have children and they grow up and we don't expect them to say five. Now, I know, parents, that this is the week you go back to school and some of you are having kindergartners go off for the first time and you're wishing they weren't going off to kindergarten maybe for the first time. But we want them to grow up. We want to see what they're like and we know that we have to grow with them. That we don't treat our 35-year-old children the way we treat our 5-year-old children. We just understand that. But I want to give us a greater sense of purpose of what it could look like to grow with our families. Whether you are an aunt and uncle, a grandparent, whether you are someone who is caring for them in the context of a church or an organization or a ministry or as a coach, you have an opportunity to grow with kids and provide what they need at the right time. Because here's the reality with kids. They're going to leave your house. And are you going to prepare them for what that day looks like? And so the first phase that your children are born into for you is called the caregiver stage. This is that 0 to 12 age group where they don't know how to walk and they don't know how to talk. They don't know how to do anything and you are required to be so hands-on with them. And the more time and energy that you can pour into them in this stage, you will reap the benefit from it. All they want is mom and dad. You are their heroes and you are the greatest thing they've ever seen and known. And they want to hear from you. And we have to give them the basics of life. We have to teach them how to eat and walk and do all these things. But in the 0 to 12 range, it is the single most important job you have is to teach them about who Jesus is and what he did and what it means to live for him. You see, the statistics are staggering. It says that our child's worldview is put in place by the age of 12, and chances are they will never turn from that worldview that you give them. So think about those comments that you make at home about things. You are building something in your kids that are going to last for the future. The statistics also say that if a child does not trust Christ by the age of 12, that the chances are slim that they ever will. Now, we can all point to a, a circumstance or all point to a person, and we have a, a, an awesome story about how God has reached down and touched their lives. And I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm just saying the stats show that the most important time you have to impress them with the gospel is when they're in your home from the ages of 0 to 12. When they're in your care from the ages of 0 to 12. You see, their, brain, their brains are like a sponge, we had a lady come speak at our church, and her name was Mary Flo Ridley, and she gave us a great analogy about a sponge. And you guys have all washed a car at some point, and sponges hold an immense amount of water. And she said, imagine your child's brain like a sponge, and you have a pitcher of water, and you pour into the sponge, and it, it, holds, it, it holds a ton of water. And then you pour a little bit more in, and you pour a little bit more in, and you're just amazed how much water this sponge could hold. And you pour, and you pour, and it becomes saturated and full. And then at that point, everything you pour in from that point on just goes over and flows off the side. She said, picture your child's brain that way. They have a certain amount of information that's going to take them to form their worldview, how they see the world. Who do you want to be the person who's pouring in most of those things? Who are the people you're going to handpick and choose to be around them? And how are you taking this opportunity to teach them about the most important story? This 0 to 12 range 
It's hands-on. You get to be in the meetings. You get to make a lot of choices and decisions. But it's the single most important time to impress the gospel on them. The next phase is the coach phase. And you go from 12 to 18. And, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a little different age with every child. But at some point around this time, a lot of them decide that mom and dad aren't the coolest anymore. They don't always want to be around. That there's more voices and there's more freedom and they go out. And so what does this phase look like for a parent who's trying to write a better story? Well, it starts in the film room. It starts with the game plan. You see, parents and caregivers and mentors and teachers, I believe we need to spend more time than we are preparing to teach our children. What is going on in social media? What is going on in culture? What is going on in their schools? What do I need to be informed on, informed in so that I can teach and instruct to help them with the choices they're going to make? Because in this 12 to 18 raise and range, their faith is becoming their own. And they got to learn to go and play the game. And so once you've done your game plan work, you move to your second phase and you begin to implement and coach and teach and train. You tell them how much you love them, how you are proud of them. You equip them. You give them training. You might even do some role play, but you have to move on to phase three. Phase three is putting them into the game. You see, in the caregiver stage, you still get to play with them. You still get to be pretty hands-on. But when it comes to this stage, they got to start living out their faith on their own. They need to experience the brokenness and the hardness of life and how their faith is going to respond to it. Because in this stage, you have one more phase. You have the phase where they come off the field. You have the phase where they come off the field and the play may have been good or bad. The game may have been good or bad, but now you have the opportunity to follow up. You can let them know how much they mean to you, how proud of them they are, you are. You can let them know some things they can work on. You can begin to coach and tinker and train so that you can send them back out into the game so that they can learn how to do this spiritual life. They can learn how to write a better story while they're still somewhat protected. Because 18 is coming. The time for them to go out and make their own decisions and to forge their own career and to forge their own family is coming and you move into the consultant phase where you don't have the same access and instead of getting to offer your opinion, your opinion has to be invited in. So I was meeting with our college students a couple weeks ago and I asked them a question and they made me feel really, really bad. So I'm going to ask you the question. How many people here have heard of the song The Cat's in the Cradle? Thank you. None of them have heard of that song. And so the whole point of that song is during the caregiver and the coach phase, dad was never there. He was never around. He was always too busy. He didn't have enough time. And when the dad eventually became the grandpa and now he wanted to have time for his son and his grandson, what did the kids say back to him? I'm just like you, dad. You see, the stories that we write as caregivers and coaches come back to play when we're consultants. And what we are doing when we are a caregiver and a coach, we are earning the right to be heard when we're a consultant and we have to be asked back in. If you're in this room and you are in the consultant phase, you're a grandparent, you're a mentor, you're someone who is brought in, the greatest thing that you can do in this stage is to pray. 
Because the thing that is transformational in our lives, in our families, is not us and the decisions we make. It is the spirit of the living God who is at work. And there is no situation that is too far gone. There is nothing that he can't do. He can rescue and he can save. But in the consultant stage, you're brought in. And when you have that chance, when they ask you for your opinion or they ask you for a take, be ready in season and out of season to give it and to point it back to the gospel. Our families need us to grow with them so that we can give them what they need to write a better story. The last thing that we need to talk about this morning that your family needs from you is intentional teaching. Your family needs intentional teaching. You see, if you are not the one who trains them, someone else will, but no one, and I mean no one, will fight for their heart the way you will. And if these commandments are on your heart and you want to impress them on the heart of the next generation, you need to take an active step to do that. And Deuteronomy 6-7 gives us some ways. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, we don't really use those phrases as much anymore, and so I've translated them for you on your notes. And when you sit down is dinner time. Now, dinner time in our country has never been under more attack. There have never been more activities, more practices, more games, more connections, more things to do. And I know it's hard to gather everyone in the family around a dinner table and to sit down and to be able to have a nice discussion. Believe me, what is real in our families is not always ideal. And when you even get them all to the table, there's no guarantee that's going to go well as well either. Did you know that God actually makes children who don't like to eat? I have three of them. Seriously, will you eat like one bite of chicken? One. This is not a picture-perfect thing that you have to sit down and have some big theological treatise about everything that's come up during the day. No, but it's an opportunity to slow down And to have good conversation. What happened in your day today? What was high? What was low? What is something that we can pray for? What is a way that the gospel could come and intersect what happened in your day? How can I use this as an avenue to instruct you about what is most important in our family? The second one is when you are on your way and drive time. Again, I understand drive time, not always ideal. We have three car seats in the back of a Toyota Corolla. I know that drive time is not always ideal. There's hitting and kicking and name calling and screaming and crying. But every once in a while, they're calm. And you can talk as a family. And then my favorite is when I'm one-on-one in the car with one of my kids. They have these things called car seats and they lock them in and they can't go anywhere. You should, you should hear about them. They're great. And um, while my son isn't there, I can turn down the radio or turn off a podcast. And I can say, hey, how was your day today? Hey, how'd you feel that practice went? Hey, you've been having trouble with that friend. How'd that go today? Hey, how, how did things go with your teacher today? Were you able to be kind to your teacher today? Were you able to obey her? And you have a captive audience because there's nowhere for them to go. <laughs> now, as they get a little bit older, it's a little hard 
You got those one-word answers. Fine. Good. Yes. So you just try to craft questions that can't be answered with fine. Tell me who you ate lunch with today. Fine. That doesn't work. It doesn't have to be every time, but these are opportunities that you can for intentional instruction. When you lay down, bedtime. Bedtime. Bedtime is just like the others. Sometimes bedtime is great. Sometimes bedtime is like, why won't you just brush your teeth? Brush your teeth. But every once in a while, you stumble into a routine that really works. And so I know my daughter, she wants me to pick her up. My wife does not like this story, but she likes me to pick her up. And we walk into her bedroom and she literally wants to be thrown onto her bed. Okay. Now we have a seven-year-old boy and a two-year-old boy. There's lots of wrestling in our family and she just loves it. And so we throw her on her bed and I put the covers over her and I lay down with her and I pray. And these aren't elaborate, exquisite prayers. This is thank you for today. Thank you for Peyton. May she be able to have fun with her brothers tomorrow and treat them well. And may she know that you love her. Simple. But time after time after time, I'm hoping that it will stick in her heart. The last one is when you rise up. It's morning time. Now, morning time is always dangerous to talk about because there's some people that you could say, hey, let's talk about the morning. You're like, it's five o'clock. I've already had six cups of coffee. I'm ready to go. And there's other people that's like, don't talk to me before eight o'clock. It doesn't even exist. But think about what the morning is. The morning is the launch pad for your day. You are launching people into the office, into the world, into school, into preschool. And you're even launching some people to stay at home for the rest of the day. But what would it look like to encourage in those times? Hey, you have a test coming up today and I'm going to pray for you. You really studied hard. You're going to do great. Hey, dad has a meeting today. And so let's be thinking about him. Let's pray for dad because it's going to be a tough meeting. And mom's going to be home today or someone's going to be taking care of these kids today. Hey, why don't you respect and obey the people who are in charge of you today? You have an opportunity to guide those times, not be stressed by the story you're writing in your head about what the day is going to be looked like, but be more concerned with writing the story of what our future is going to be like. When you came in today, you were handed a little card. And if you were here last week, you got another card last week. This one's different. And it's very similar, but what we want you to do is we really want you to find a place where you can display this in your home, whether it's a mirror or a dashboard, whether it's on your kitchen table, because it can be just another piece of paper or it can be a tool that you use to be transformative in your family. And on the front is the question that we talked about today. What does my family need from me? It's a personal question. What does my family need from me? How can you answer that? Can you do that reality check? On the back is a verse, and the verse is Proverbs 4.11. It says, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. And it's written by a man named Solomon, who's looking down at his son, kind of at the end, and he's saying, the legacy I left is I've taught you these ways. I've given you the way that you should go. Now it's your chance to walk in it. That is the legacy that we want to leave. We want to look back and say, I wrote the best possible story that God could write through my life in me. And we pointed you to the things that are to be upon your hearts because everything else is meaningless. So my question today for you is, is it in you? Is it in you?
Because if it's not in you, it won't be in them. You cannot give them, you cannot lead them out of something that's not in you. If you cannot do that reality check and come to the place where loving the one true God and having his commandments on your heart is the way you lead and make decisions, you can't put that in them. If you can't come to the dinner table and put the crazy day behind you and focus on something more important. If you can't make time for bedtime or focus on that car ride. If you can't be distracted from anything else going on in the morning. You've got to ask the question, what's in me? What is driving me? What has control of my heart? And I truly believe if we will let the Spirit in and let Him do a transformative work in our lives and we ask for His guidance to lead our families, then we will be able to supply what our family needs from us as we point them in the direction of writing a better story. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us families. Father, whether it's our physical family or it's our church family, Father, you have placed us in positions where we can have influence. And the influence that you have called us to have is one that is centered on a relationship with you. Father, I pray that we would be a people who can look in the mirror and do an honest reality check, not giving answers that we think someone wants to hear, but talking about what's real. Father, and I pray that we be people that love you and that put you first, that put your commandments upon our hearts. Father, when we slip up, that we might confess, we may be, go back to the source so that we might read a better story, one that's eternal, one that's timeless, one that won't pass away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.